Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. financial transactions to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in Washington, D.C. in PwC's Policy on Demand studio, I'm excited to have Rebecca Lee back on the podcast. Rebecca is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services office, specializing in financial transactions. Rebecca, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, glad to be here. So first of all, I wanna thank you for stepping in for our partner, Laura Valestin, who has a last minute cancellation due to a cold she has. Um, I, I did want to note that before the pandemic, we probably would just would have infected our colleagues. Right. Um, so, so maybe that is the one good thing or one of the few good things that's happened out of the pandemic. But I do want to mention now that with this appearance of Rebecca, you have now officially surpassed Pat Brown for the most appearances on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. I hope he's in the office today so I can go rub it in after this. Congratulations. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about today is foreign exchange gain or losses. And so maybe before we even dive in, why is FX so important now, particularly for, for US multinationals and US companies? You know, a strengthening dollar has really changed the game in terms of the way that companies are thinking about foreign currency management. And that's beyond the tax function. That's companies really thinking about what does cash management and cash optimization look like? What does all in sort of our economic returns look like in an environment that's radically different from probably the last 15 years? So what does that mean for some of our listeners that may not be quite as in tune with the FX that we have a strengthening dollar? So if I'm a multinational and I derive my income from a variety of jurisdictions that use currencies other than the US dollar, it means a few things. So the very practical, are that if I have positions that are denominated in currencies other than my own currency, now a strengthening dollar means potential gains on the asset side and losses where I have dollar liabilities like payments on royalties and other things back to my home office. On the flip side, and where it gets much more complicated, if you're sitting in the seat of the treasurer, what you're looking at is, I have forecasted revenues in euros and pounds and zloty and a whole bunch of other currencies, and I'm trying to predict what my all-in profitability will look like. A rising dollar implies a weakening of the other currencies. So my strong international revenue may now look a little bit less strong when it's translated into US dollars. Right, and where we have these potential economic gains or losses as the case may be, that can potentially create tax opportunities, right? Or, way, or, or just tax consequences, right? Maybe in the form of an opportunity or may just be in the form of a transaction. But with this, these relatively large fluctuations, at least something that I've, we haven't seen in a while, um, really can have dramatic implications from a tax perspective. Absolutely, I do want to pause on speed and magnitude for a second, because I think that is what has made this so shocking to people, is not just that you had a strengthening dollar and a change environment, the speed at which the FX rates changed for the dollar combined with the increased volatility going forward has companies really taking a second look. And I think that is that's having to move quickly on these issues is what's really unprecedented. All right, so we're, this is the cross-border tax talk, so we're mm -hmm. gonna dive into some of the tax issues. But before we begin, Rebecca, I have a challenge for, for you, for us, really, um, for this podcast. 
And this is to see if we can go the entire podcast on foreign exchange issues without mentioning a code section. Now, this is an area of the law where we get so bogged down with code sections that people often struggle with how things work. And I think we're just so used to talking in code sections. So for those that are watching on YouTube, for those that are listening, I encourage checking out on YouTube. But if you use a code section, I'm going to buzz you with this. And if I use a code section, you're going to buzz me. All right. I am optimistic that we can make through the podcast without one buzzer going off, but we will see. All right, so let's let the games begin. How do we determine the functional currency of an entity for U.S. tax purposes? In determining the functional currency, we start with a few factors. First, reporting currency in the jurisdiction for reporting. So think GAAP or IFRS as appropriate include and local statutory accounting as well as local tax reporting. We also then look at the predominant economic flows into that entity. So we look at denomination of expenses, denomination of assets, both financial assets and anticipated cash flows and revenues. And we take all those factors together with two caveats. The first, if you're a US company, you're just per se US dollar. We don't get to look at what you earn. Uh, and the second is that with all of those factors together, we also look at both if you are an entity that has entities checked into you or where you own branches or entities that operate a distinct, in a distinct economic environment, we may also be looking at the totality of everyone's assets and liabilities. So, so, talk, so we know that, for example, a U.S. parent group, to your point, or a U.S. company by default has the... Uh, uh, a functional currency that's a U.S. dollar. Talk a little bit about branches versus CFCs, and then what, why is that important to understand what the functional currency is before we even dive into some of the tax consequences of these financial transactions? Sure. So a CFC, much like a U.S. corporation, is a per se qualified business unit. So we don't look at its activity to decide does it have a level of activity that rises to the level of a trader business. We just start with as a standalone corporation, you get to adopt a functional currency. For a branch, and that can be a true branch or that could be a legal entity that is disregarded from its owner. So check For, the box branch. Check the box branch. Yep. You start with the premise of looking at its activities to assess whether it rises to the level of a separate trader business. That's a real trader business. It has to be uh, in the parlance of the most recent branch regs, that has to be an active trader business, but it has to have real activities. And so most common fact pattern and one that comes up for every company is I have a hold com hold co or a holding company that holds a disregarded entity that does something, manufactures, builds. And so we have the two prong question of that CFC owner is generally permitted to adopt its own functional currency, but does the currency of the branch operations that inform and make the whole thing use a single functional currency? And this is where gap and tax, sometimes we don't get along, mm -hmm. because gap has this premise that if you're a holding company, kind of a similar theme, you don't necessarily get to pick your own functional currency, you take the functional currency of your owner. So if you're US parented and you have a bunch of holding companies beneath it that are non-US companies, each of those holding companies may be required to use the US dollar as its functional currency, putting you in this uh, situation where you have to assess the functional currency of the whole. And one more thing to mention, mm -hmm. in assessing the functional currency for a CFC specifically, so not for my U.S. companies, 
I look to the predominant economic environment, taking into account all the branches. So even if I have one of these home offices that has separate books and records, that has adopted a functional currency for GAAP, I have to look at all the trader business activity in the CFC to see if one currency rises to the top as being the predominant currency. Right, and a couple of things to, to unpack there. So we're gonna be talking about the US tax implications of some of these financial transactions. Um, but that really, what drives that is obviously the U.S. tax or the U.S. characterization of that functional currency, which you just outlined. But you'd also mentioned U.S. GAAP. Now, you had, all, you had said that the U.S. GAAP can be one of the factors for determining the functional currency, but it's not determinative. The other thing that I think is important for listeners to know is that there's also local tax implications, right? So it is theoretically possible that the U.S. functional, the U.S. function, the functional currency for U.S. tax purposes may be different than the GAAP functional currency, and it could also be different from the local uh, tax functional currency. So it's really important as we start unpacking and talking about some of these different consequences that you think about the financial state Im statement implications as well as the local country implications. Could I've, I've seen that, that get confused in the past. And that can also lead to some really, after the fact, poor results, where if you're not tracking those three factors going into structuring a transaction or moving intercompany debt around, the types of stuff I do, um, where you can end up with is you think you fixed, you've gotten gap and US tax all aligned and the structure looks great, and then you find out that you created some massive finished tax bill that you did not right. expect because it wasn't local currency. And a lot of jurisdictions don't have the flexibility that the US has, so they make you use the local currency that's the only appropriate reporting currency. And I, I have similar, I've seen similar experiences on the, on, the, on the gap perspective and financial statement where you know, taxpayers, advisors can get very focused on the tax consequences, the US tax implications or even the Finnish tax implications and then potentially lose sight of the financial statement, whether that's GAAP or IFRS, because again, that functional currency may be different for any number of reasons. All right, so want to talk about some of these financial transactions. And I, I almost started with the code section. I, 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 I could see you getting the hand on the buzzer. Um, so let's start with foreign exchange gain or loss on debt instruments. So let's start with generally when is gain or loss triggered on debt instruments? When I say it is. <laughs> no. So in general, our foreign currency rules do not prescribe the timing of gains and losses. They default to general tax principles with some exceptions. So we look at when payments are made, payments of interest, payments of principal. If you have a significant modification, such that you have a realization event for tax on the debt instrument generally, that'll generally be a time that you pick up foreign currency gain or loss. If you contribute the loan to capital, such that the loan is extinguished, we have a last clear chance rule that will trigger it. And the reason I jokingly said, well, whenever I say it is, because we also have in proposed regulations issued in 2017, we have an elective mark to market regime that allows you to elect to just pick up your unrealized foreign currency gains and losses on an annual basis as if you were on a mark to market method of accounting. And that rule and brought to you with the goal of solving problems for things like treasury centers is actually really useful in its base case for folks who are not particularly well situated to make book tax adjustments. It allows you to be book conforming in a lot of circumstances. So there's a huge amount of flexibility, but that also means like if you list, if you went through my whole laundry list, I didn't list every single last clear chance rule. Right. There's a lot of circumstances where if you're not watching out for it, gains can be triggered 
without you keeping on or losses can be triggered in a location where you can't as efficiently use them. So there's a real benefit to tax being sort of really um, not just super knowledgeable around the tax triggering events, but also having a real clear vision of where there are either commercial activities that are gonna happen that would trigger realization, or where there's gap gains and losses being triggered on a periodic basis, where if you're not keeping track of that, it might be kind of just going into the return without folks thinking too much about it. So can, can we maybe walk through an example? Imagine if we had a US parented group that lent to, let's say a, a UK sterling CFC in dollars. So maybe talk about like, you know, what would the, the potential consequences be of that, given how much the dollar strengthened relative to the pound, um, if let's say the, the note was due and it was time to repay the debt, for example. So if we do our comparison, it's let's assume it's a US dollar denominated debt instrument. So the US has no foreign currency gain or loss and our pound functional uh, CFC has is gonna have foreign currency gain or loss. And assuming I've made no special elections, I haven't done anything else, when the payment of principal gets made, when that debt is retired, that would trigger the foreign currency gain or loss. Now in a strengthening dollar environment, that debt has gotten real expensive for my sterling functional CFC. Because so, it's gonna take more pounds for them to be able to pay that dollar equivalent. Exactly. So they're gonna to have to go out and put up more pounds and pay it off, which in a CFC, if I have foreign currency gain or loss, I'm gonna assume this is an interest bearing payable because I've got good transfer pricing and everything. Right. Uh, I'm going to allocate and apportion the foreign currency gain or loss on that borrowing across in the same manner as interest expense is allocated. So if I have this loss when I repay, because I don't do anything else, I'm going to have foreign currency gain or loss, I'm gonna look at where the interest expense is allocated and I'm gonna allocate it in the same manner, which can mean that if you've got a CFC that's just producing guilty income, no high tax, no anything else, that your foreign currency gain or loss on that borrowing is gonna be available to offset guilty income. And it could also be available to offset subpart F income. That's not a code section. It's a. Sub, I was doing the same thing. A, I was like, guilty is not a code section. I'm with you. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's the numbers that we're trying to avoid. Um, that the the subpart that if there is subpart F income at the entity, then and then to your point that you allocate that loss like interest expense and may offset your subpart F income. Which brings me to a discussion of cream skimming. Because one of, like if you talk about issues that get people like me really excited, mm -hmm. if you have an entity that both has passive subpart F income and has guilty income, this allocation and apportionment question, what do I do with the interest expense? Normally interest expense in a CFC is allocated first to your passive income and then to your other income. And so there's some interesting drafting in the relevant regulations that sort of makes you ask the question, do I allocate my loss and my hypothetical first zero out my subpart F income mm -hmm. and then take it to my other category? Or do I just do it the way interest expense would be allocated and apportioned without cream skimming? All right, so let's change the hypothetical now. So instead of the US lending to the UK CFC in, in, uh, in, in US dollars, what if the, lend, the lending was done in pounds? So then my CFC feels great because they're just gonna use their pounds to repay the loan when it's due. We want our CFCs to feel great. I do, I want yeah. them to feel like loved and nurtured. Right. Um, but meanwhile, the U.S. now is sitting on what will be an exposure from a foreign currency standpoint, and in a rising dollar environment, that means that their receivable, because they're the lender, is going to have dropped in value. Um, rising dollar. 
Um, so same economics, but now the U.S. is sitting on the loss. That is going to be ordinary loss when realized. Because yeah, they're be... collecting. I, I, you have to think about both sides of the transaction. Right? I had to think about it as well. So what you're saying, so because it was lent in, in, in pound sterling, when they and if it's decreased, they're actually going to be getting less U.S. dollars equivalent when that exactly. When I'm a U.S. Day. dollar person, I measure everything as compared to the U.S. dollar. So I have this asset that I acquired that has a basis translated into U.S. dollars when I acquired it. And when this thing is repaid, I'm going to take the number of sterling, translate them into U.S. dollars, and I'm going to compare is that basis bigger or smaller than it was when the loan originated. Um, so ordinary income or loss, and it's going to be U.S source, which um, for better or for worse, there's mm -hmm. not sort of an allocation, an apportionment, a look through, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and we have rules that would tell you, you pick up that loss in our example when realized, subject to any other loss deferral rule that could apply to it. So in the U.S. consolidated group, I would go looking for liabilities or other obligations to pay in sterling because those are the types of things that could create a loss deferral on my economic loss. Got those it. are called the tax straddle rules. And there's a code section that I won't tell you. Nice. Well, we're going to get to the code sections at the very end. So for my fellow, <laughs> for our fellow OCD listeners, we will, we will mention um, some of the code sections. One of the things that I will note is that often companies in this, in the example, in both of these examples, will adopt hedging strategies. Mm -hmm. That we'll, we'll leave that for another podcast because that that th those are obviously some complex issues. But really, just wanted to flush out some of the basic foreign exchange gain or loss issues. So we're going to tweak the hypothetical slightly again. So instead of the U.S. lending to the UK CFC, let's just go the opposite way. So that the if the UK CFC is lending to the US company, and imagine we'll go back to the original example where that's in I dollars. was gonna I was gonna say what kind of loan that is, and then I didn't because I was like, can't can't describe <laughs> it. So we have a we have an upstream loan from a UK subsidiary to a US parented company, and uh, we'll start in dollars. So my UK company has an asset that is denominated in a currency other than its functional currency. It will have foreign currency gain or loss on that. It's a loan upstream to the US. So the income on that is going to be subpart F income. There's just no getting around that. So the gain or loss on that loan is going to be treated as subpart F income. And I think this would be a loss, right? Yeah. If, if, if we've got the UK subsidiary and US dollars, so it's going to take them more pounds to, to repay. Well, I don't know when they made the loan. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but assuming we have assuming like we the, have the normal scenario yeah. where I've got a loss, this is actually something, this is a huge trap for the unwary because that loss sits in its own little category because subpart F income has all of its different categories. One, one category is net foreign currency gain is its own category. So if I have a loss, that loss is trapped in its own little bucket, not available to offset any other category of income, which is, I think we can all acknowledge suboptimal tax planning. If I have an economic loss, I can't benefit it. Right. And so it, I, I always thought one of the things is that, that is interesting is that if it's a payable where we started, you have to allocate that loss you know, just like its interest expense. If it's a receivable, then it's this kind of other category, if you will, of subpart. Sometimes we joke around, we call this the hokey pokey because you're either in or you're out. So I'm either eligible on the asset side. The test that I apply is I'm either eligible for the business needs exception or not. And that name is wildly misleading because a lot of companies will have these conversations. They'll say, of course, every cash transfer, every loan is for the business needs of the company. We're not doing things for personal purposes. 
the standard is it both has to be in the normal course of the CFC's trader business, like being engaged in a lending business, being a treasury center, uh, a receivable arising from the provision of goods and services, and the transaction cannot give rise to subpart F income other than FX. So on, an, on a loan, you look at the interest income. And with our hypothetical with an upstream loan, everything's sub F. In the real world, when you have CFCs lending to each other, depending on you know, who you're lending to and the application of C6 and where they're taking their deduction against, that decision about whether the income is all sub F or all not can be a little bit uh, grayer. And at the end of the day, I think a really interesting question is, can you then take the loan and bifurcate it if it produces more than one kind of income? Um, but in our upstream loan, I don't have to get to it. It's all, if you will, they put their whole thing in and it's all sub F. Um, we, I just had a ruling from the producer and we're going to, to, to take C6 as a- Darn it, that was not a full code section. It was not a full code section, but listen, I, I'm, I'm I, hearing you know, in my, my ear from the, from the producer. I'm a stand-up person, I will accept that. Okay. And I will get you back. <laughs> And and so the so so I think it's very important for listeners to understand that the the payable and receivables, particularly at the CFC level, can have very very different different consequences, um, and a lot of nuances. Particularly again, if there's hedging, and to your point, in the business needs exception. Um, but really, again, just trying to to focus on the fact that it's been kind of in the pound. As the reason I use that example is that it's frankly extraordinary how weak it is compared to to the U.S. dollar and how quickly it's moved. Um, so the next, the next area that I wanted to focus on, because I think we, what we really covered there is when is gain or loss triggered, particularly at the time of, the, of, of a transaction of some sort, sort of the difference between payables and receivables in our example at the CFC level, as well as at the US level, um, that, that in all very kind of different, different rules that are important for, for taxpayers to understand. So the next thing I wanted to move to is foreign exchange gain or loss on income that has already been subject to tax in the U.S. So an example of that is, is where the U.S. Um, has recognized either subpart F income or has recognized guilty income or may have even recognized income as a result of the Homeland Investment Act um, of the, you know, the deemed <laughs> repatriation. I'm familiar with This it. is hard. The deemed repatriation provisions. Mm -hmm. And so there's piles of income that we we used to refer to as PTI that are now PTEP, so previously taxed earnings and pro, pro, profits. So maybe first explain why foreign exchange gain or loss could be or should be created when you have a repatriation of those earnings. So the world's divided into translational foreign currency gain or loss and transactional gain or loss. So our debt examples are classic examples of translational foreign currency gain or loss. We just look at on an individual transaction, the change in currency rates from when the transaction started until you have a realization event. For translational foreign currency gain or loss, we sort of start with the premise that a US dollar uh, parented company keeps track of all of its tax attributes that are due to the US government in US dollars. And so when you have amounts that are included in income in advance of receipt, those get translated based, for example, on the average foreign currency rate for the year when they hit the U.S. return. And then time will pass before that money marries up to the tax inclusion. Because in other words, it's been taxed in dollars, but it's still sitting in those local accounts in its local currency. So the amount that, you know, in the situation where you have a distribution, the actual amount 
translated in US dollar when received, like on the spot rate on the date of receipt, is going to inherently be different than the rate at which you included that income. And our sort of constellation of foreign currency rules says we view that as foreign currency gain or loss. That's just the difference between the rate at which you included the income and the actual value of the foreign currency you received when you actually received it. So they almost take something that is inherently translational because it's kind of a blend of a whole bunch of stuff going on in the entity and they turn it into something that feels almost transactional. It's like our PTEP, which we don't think of as being a receivable for any other purpose, almost acts as a little receivable where I set the amount that it's valued at based on the inclusion on the average rate on the year, and then I compare that to the amount for which it's actually paid off, translated into US dollars on the date uh, that it's received. So if we had to go back to our example, where US parented company and a UK CFC, and maybe let's say three years ago, that we had a big subpart F and or guilty inclusion, what happens when this year, when we then make that, take that money and make an actual cash distribution of those previously taxed earnings? So we're gonna look at the, sort of we have a pool, if you will, of previously taxed earnings that were included at different rates. Let's take the simplest version of your hypothetical where I had one year in those three years, this massive inclusion. I look at the average rate for the year at which it was included as compared to the distribution and there will be foreign currency gain or loss based on the difference. And how is that foreign currency gain or loss treated for U.S. tax purposes? That's going to be ordinary, ordinary income, ordinary expense. Like if you follow like one watchword, like foreign currency gains and losses, no matter how derived, are generally treated as ordinary gain, ordinary loss. And I, you know, this I, I think is I, it's hard to call it a tax planning opportunity because companies are going to they're either going to need cash offshore, they're going to need cash onshore. But I, I think that it's important for, for taxpayers to understand that given the way the dollar has strengthened, that to the extent that they've had big inclusions over the last several years, including that provision that required those, uh, all the accumulated earnings before 2017 to be immediately subject to U.S. tax, well, making cash distributions could potentially result in ordinary loss in the U.S. And this is one of those classic, like, tracking your attributes, knowing your attributes, whether it's this translational exposure or whether it's having a bird's eye view of where you have big transactional unrealized items. I mean, we spend a lot of time with our ITS colleagues who seem to know all of the attributes, like how much foreign tax credits and where they sit and what buckets and everything else. But then you go, well, what are your attributes around all your foreign currency items? They're like, and so I think that's something that has a huge amount of value because then you, as a tax professional, more importantly, interfacing with the rest of your organization because everything I just talked about has an analog in financial accounting, has an analog in sort of from a corporate treasury standpoint. If we say, you know, why don't you bring that cash home or why don't you do something to bring that cash home? If you're actually bringing actual cash home versus doing something a little bit more structured, your corporate treasurer has to have something to do with right. the cash or a deployment, yeah. or it has to make sense for yeah. them. Exactly, like the, the business, the, the treasurer's <laughs> desire are going to generally outweigh tax. But the point being is that there's a, a, probably a lot of latent foreign currency, potential ordinary losses for those companies that have a lot of the previously taxed earnings. And again, that's a big piece of that, in my view, is, is a result of just the change from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, and you know, because of both the, the historic earnings being taxed as well as now you're gonna have most taxpayers, most multi-US multinationals have a pile of guilty earnings that are subject to US tax where this you can start creating or where this foreign exchange loss may, may be building. And I'd even say for companies that don't have this big pool of previously taxed earnings because of some of the previous incentives to bring cash back to the US, 
the extreme rate of change between 2021 and now may even mean that that 21 inclusion that you weren't hot to trot to get back into the U.S. and make a distribution immediately may itself have a fairly significant foreign currency loss associated Yeah, it's a great point because many corporate taxpayers are just filing their returns. And they're like, oh, I finally did the math and like, wait a second. Right. No, it's a great point. Okay, so let's move on to the foreign exchange gain or loss on branches. Now, this is a very complicated area, Rebecca, and something, you know, I've been tracking my entire career. I call you a lot when we, when we start these issues or when, when, I, when, we come in, when we come to these issues. But maybe if you could just start with a couple of minutes of a brief history of the regulations, because we have a whole series of different regulations and it makes my head spin every time we get into these discussions. Sit back. This is going to take a while. Okay. So we had the enactment of our branch rule. So picture, you know, mid eighties, we now have rules that are specifically applicable to taxing the translational gain or loss for activities for branches. And they're rules that are similar, but not identical to the rules that apply to a corporate entity making a remittance, everything we just talked about for bringing PTEP home. We had a few years pass. We had proposed regulations in 1991 that are fairly detailed and proposed a model that fundamentally can be described as all assets and all liabilities of a branch produce foreign currency gain or loss. So whether I have a loan in functional currency as a receivable or an apartment building that has a basis in local currency, and then if I take it out of branch solution at some point, what we call a remittance, that will have foreign currency gain or loss to translate that back to the currency of its home office. And that fundamental uh, observation is the thing that the service has been and the treasury have been wrestling with for you know, 30 years. So we have regs in 91. We have a notice in 2000 that says, wait a second, it's occurred to us that smart tax planners are utilizing these rules we've written to trigger non-economic losses. So picture my apartment building in my branch that I'm running profitably. Um, it occurred to them that maybe that shouldn't have foreign currency gain or loss on it, that I could do things like pulling cash out and trigger a massive foreign currency gain or loss that relates to a brick and mortar asset. Right. Um, and they announced that Treasury and the IRS will be writing regulations that, provi that provide a rule that is more holistic. That 2000 notice also brought us something called the earnings only method. It's really uh, one of the few times that that method is referenced. The 91 method says you have foreign currency gain or loss on everything in the branch. Earnings only described as an analog to the translational rules that apply for remittances out of corporations, if you will, distributions out of corporations. Mm -hmm. They said, we're only going to create foreign currency gain or loss on the amounts that relate to earnings of the branch. And they say explicitly, we want this to be like the rules that are applicable to corporations. Similar to what we just talked about with uh, the, the distributions of PTAP. Exactly, so we're not even remotely done. So right. then 2006, <laughs> we get proposed regulations that are voluminous. They're like five to six times as long as the 1991 regs and they're very detailed, but they make a fundamental radical change that echoes through the rest of our discussion, which is they say, the world is, is divided into essentially financial assets and everything else. And everything else comes into the branch at historic rate and comes out of the branch at historic rate. We are not creating foreign currency gains and losses on apartment buildings and cattle and whatever else you have in your branch. On the flip side, if you have a foreign currency denominated loan, what we're going to do with that, let's say my, let's extend our UK example a little bit further and say that now I have a pound functional branch. 
if they hold a pound functional receivable, that financial asset will be remeasured on an annual basis, and the gain or loss will go into the pool of uh, translational foreign currency gain or loss that's available to be taxed. And similar to the way that we treat corporate remittances or corporate distributions, we tax this foreign currency translational gain or loss at the time it is remitted. It is brought home, you bring property out of the branch. Those regs were great, they got a lot of comments, like because taxpayers said, this is really, really complicated, calls for information that does not exist in nature that mm -hmm. we have to create solely for tax purposes, is not aligned with any uh, accounting standards, so GAAP or IFRS, this doesn't match up to any rule that exists in nature, you really need to come up with something more simplified, this is too difficult and burdensome. In those regulations went final in 2016 with a deferred effective date, which has now been deferred 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, uh, six, six times. Six, yeah, I had to count years. that on my fingers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Deferred six times. And in, 20, in uh, 2019, when the Trump administration had their let's call out rules that are unduly burdensome, these final regulations, final but deferred, were part of that sort of set of regulations that were ca called out as being too burdensome. So where are we now? Mm -hmm. We have two sets of proposed regulations, one set of final but deferred regulations, one notice that says we've identified some behavior we don't like, six, I think we only have four actual deferral notices, which provide some feedback on what method you can adopt when, and a whole bunch of organizations that have lots of entities that operate in branch form. Mm -hmm. So what do tax, let's go back to the example. We have a US parent and instead of it being a UK CFC, it's a, it's a UK branch and it makes a remittance back to, to the US. How do taxpayers navigate these various sets of rules to determine what that foreign exchange gain or loss, presumably loss, might be? So first things first, you have to decide, you have to figure out your history. So I described a history of these guidance projects and regulations and statutory provisions going back to the mid 80s. You have to look at the history of the branch. You have to look at what methodologies you have used when there have been distributions from this branch previously, or you've had other branch distributions. Because you might have inadvertently or intentionally adopted one of these methods. And it could be the all in what people refer to as the 91 regs. This everything has foreign currency gain or loss. It could be earnings only. It could be some version of the 2006 or final but deferred regulations. And if you've already picked something, then I can tell you what the answer is. So when you remit, you look at what methodology you're using, and then you figure out what the unrealized gain or loss is from the branch. And then everything else there, the math is actually not hard because it's proportional. Right. If I remit 50% of the assets of the branch, I take out 50% of what's called the basis pool, which is looking at the basis of all the stuff in there on a pooled basis and my equity pool, which is the value of the stuff that's in there. Mm -hmm. So like you can, if you can do the hard stuff and decide on the method and get the data, the actual figuring out the gain or loss on specific remittances is a manageable exercise. Yeah, and I just wanna echo the point because I've seen this and, and have struggled is that taxpayers may not realize that they have adopted a previous method, right? Because this has been around for a long time. And so it is important to kind of, to go back to make sure that 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 the taxpayers are being consistent, and I think one of the things that I know the service understandably is is concerned with is cherry picking the different rules, right, and trying to be pick advantageous rules from one of the the regs 
proposed regs and then and cherry picking other rules, which understandably is a concern for, for the service. Well, and sometimes if a company's trying to get their arms around, how do I figure this out if I don't have really great record keeping? I think going back to two points in time that are particularly notable, the original Homeland Reinvestment Act and 2017, 2018, 2019 are good pause points because companies tended to take a really holistic view because they needed to know what their earnings and profits were. I'm not saying there aren't other good times to look, but those are the places that if a company can't look in the recent past and find something, that's where I start. Because, and to your point there, because there were those deemed distributions that occurred, so presumably they made some form of uh, of, a, of adoption at some point because they had to take some position at the time of those, those big transactions. Exactly, and even in a, a deferral world, those remittances were things that would have affected the earnings and profits of the subsidiaries who then had deemed distributions. Right, so we had talked about, so, so, so the, I almost did it, the branch, if you have a branch loss, ordinary or capital? Ordinary. Ordinary. So these foreign, ex these generally, these foreign exchange losses are, are ordinary in the U.S. Now, what happens if that branch was held by a CFC and assuming that the CFC had a different functional currency than the pound? So let's assume we had a, a CFC with the U.S. dollar functional currency. Um, you know, what would take that, whatever that, that maybe the, not the most common example, but that, those exist sure. out there in the wild. So if we had a CFC that owned a UK branch, how is that treated for subpart F and or guilty if you had gain or if you have loss at the CFC level? It's complicated. <laughs> So this all is like when you adopt one of these reg packages, you're bringing a lot of baggage with it. So under the statute, there's no statutory rule. So the statutory provision has a rule around source that basically says look to the source of the activities of the branch. But that's really thinking about source like U.S. versus foreign, not more nuanced. We have subpart F rules that articulate all the categories of subpart F income, and this branch translational gain or loss is not on that list. And then we have regulations like the 91 regulations and thereafter that said, you kind of need to do it by reference to the income that's earned by the branch. So you need to come up with some methodology that if your branch is earning 20% of its income is sub F and the remainder is guilty or high tax or whatever, you should be splitting up the, the 987. Mm. We got Gainer it. I can't loss. believe we have done this far. Uh, You've done an amazing job, though. Keep going. So good. Um, you have to split it up across the categories. And that's an exercise that you actually have to you know, put some thought into because the branch activities may differ year on year. I mean, you might have had an extraordinary year. Mm -hmm. So you have these, is it all just not guilty? Is it all allocated in some way? Um, and then we have a wrinkle. So we don't have final regulations under these code sections, but we do have a set of foreign tax credit regulations that was finalized. And they do two things. They reference quite freely the final but deferred regulations. And so we have this atmospheric debate about does this breathe life into yeah, regulations? It, right. And then second, they have a specific rule for foreign tax credit purposes that tells you what to do with the income of the branch and how to allocate it. So one of the questions we ask when someone says, well, is it sub F or guilty or how do I treat it? As I start with, well, for what purpose are you asking? Mm -hmm. And then I can provide a response to make sure it's in line with the guidance that is either final effective binding today or this reasonable position cobbled together with a lot of guidance, none of it finalized. 
So these branch rules, I mean, I think you did an excellent job explaining because these are very highly complicated area, a lot of uncertainty, all of these different layers. And so just something for taxpayers, taxpayers to be certainly mindful of. So, all right, so we're, we're here at the end. The, the game is officially over. I, you had gotten so close. First of all, this was not a fair fight. You spoke 90% of this entire <laughs> podcast um, when you only mentioned 987 mm-hmm. once. So can you now, for our, for our listeners, what are these relevant code sections that, that we have been talking about in subpart J for those oh, keeping track of Oh, this is, okay. So subpart J, <laughs> you have 985, determination of functional currency. Inclu- <laughs> oh, that's not fair. I know, but I couldn't resist. Including the rules if you need to change your functional currency in the Treasury Regulations 985-5. You have 986, which are rules for translating the activities of taxpayers who do not use the U.S. dollars or functional currency, including 986C, which is that rule that says, what do I do with previously taxed earnings that have been included and translating them uh, once I receive a distribution, so that foreign currency gain or loss element. 987, branch rule. So all that translational gain or loss with respect to branch activities where I have an entity that uses a different functional currency from its owner. 988, translational foreign currency gain or loss. Loans, debt instruments, accounts payable, accounts receivable, and any derivative denominated in foreign currency. 989, definition of what is a qualified business unit. So that are the rules that tell me what is the type of thing that gets to adopt its own functional currency. And bonus, although it's not in subchapter J, the straddle rules are under section 1092. Oh yeah, I forgot about 1092 outside of subpart J. All right, well, Rebecca, this might be one of the nerdiest podcasts that I think I've recorded. Um, and I couldn't think of a better person and partner to do it with you. So thank you very much for joining. This thank was a so ton much. of fun. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Rebecca Lee, an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Service. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Service's global leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.